is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from art to science, from history to, of course, sports and everything else in between, including your stories. And if you have one, well, then send it to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Also, go there to sign up for our podcasts. We've got over 500 hours worth, OurAmericanNetwork.org. And former Senator Arthur Vandenberg is someone that you probably don't know. And many in his own hometown of Grand Rapids, Michigan, probably don't know him either. Fellow Grand Rapidian author and business leader Hank Meyer was surprised by how many folks thought the statue in their town must be in honor of the local jeweler who shares the same last name. So to do something about it, Hank wrote the first biography on the man and it's titled Arthur Vandenberg, The Man in the Middle of the American Century. And he joined us for a discussion on his life and legacy. Here's the first portion of our conversation. The Panic of 1893 ruined the brisk business of Aaron Vandenberg. By the way, that's Arthur Vandenberg's father. His son Arthur, nine years old, was profoundly affected. Quote, I had no youth, he insisted decades later with typical hyperbole. I had one passion, to be certain that when I grew up, I would not be in the position my father was. Talk about the impact of Arthur Vandenberg's father's financial problems on his life. Aaron Vandenberg, Arthur's father, was a prosperous harness maker. He had moved west from New York State following the the frontier and the Erie Canal out to Michigan and set up a harness business that by all accounts was thriving. And that bought a measure of middle-class respectability and and prosperity and community life to their family in which young Arthur was growing up that was shattered in 1893 when Arthur was nine years old. 1893 was one of the worst depressions in American history, really the worst precursor of the Great Depression. It was called the Panic of 93. And Aaron did not go bankrupt, but he was severely straightened, and his nine-year-old son took it upon himself at a time when you think about what effect that must have on a child, rather than being discouraged, he went out and saw that he needed to contribute to the family, and he was trying one entrepreneurial scheme after another, and uh, he had other little boys working for him, making deliveries from a local shoe factory down to the railroad station. The effect that you ask about is twofold. One, it made him work from an early age. It has a Horatio Alger kind of quality to it. And two, that panic of 1893 occurred during the administration of President Grover Cleveland. Now, Grover Cleveland was the only Democrat before Woodrow Wilson in the life of Arthur Vandenberg and in the life of our country. And whether or not it was his decisions regarding inflation and silver and other things that contributed to the panic of 1893 or not, uh, Aaron on his deathbed would say to son Arthur, Arthur, promise me you'll always be a Republican. (laughs) We had had two ingredients coming out of that that, uh, financial panic that uh, certainly influenced Arthur Vandenberg's life. The young Vandenberg so loved politics that when Teddy Roosevelt came to town for a parade, The 16-year-old left his desk at the biscuit factory to attend it, and he lost his job. A political passion, though, that persisted. He was 21 years old, and already the ace reporter for the Grand Rapids Herald, which was the local Republican daily, 
when the editor died very suddenly. And the publisher, who at that time was Congressman, later Senator William Alden Smith, notable, by the way, chiefly for conducting the hearings into the sinking of the Titanic, William Alden Smith needed an editor. And he looked around the newsroom, and the young man who was his most productive reporter was not yet 22 years old, and his name was Arthur Vandenberg. But Senator Smith went over to him and said, young man, you're my editor. Go kick your feet under the mahogany of the editor's desk. And so Vandenberg almost couldn't believe it himself, but he was catapulted at that young age. And running a newspaper made you automatically an influential figure in the community. You were the source of information. You were also the partisan spokesman for the, the dominant political party in the community and in the state and regarded themselves as in some ways quasi-public officials. I mean, they were the fourth estate helping set the tone of the debate in the country. And so you were someone to be reckoned with, and here he was not yet 22 years old writing editorials that were shaping and influencing public opinion. With that position as editor, Vandenberg's influence grows to the point where he recruits a Republican candidate for governor and uses his microphone at the paper to help him get elected. A governor, by the way, that he thought would help him with his goal of becoming a U.S. senator. That's what Vandenberg really wanted. In 1928, when the incumbent senator unexpectedly passed away, the governor got to appoint his replacement. But two former governors of the Republican Party suddenly expressed interest in that Senate seat, too. And so, as Hank puts it, to avoid making his friends angry with his choice, the governor had his chief of staff do his dirty work and made them all angry by notifying them that he would be appointing, well, none of them. Vandenberg, he's fuming. He is so upset when he gets a call that one of the newspapers is reporting that he's been appointed to the Senate. And he knows that he won't be. And then, as it turns out, the Detroit News, which is the most influential Republican paper in Michigan, had a reporter who observed Vandenberg being summoned to the governor's office and assumed that that was to be informed of his appointment. So the news ran with a headline that said uh, Vandenberg named senator. And when that wasn't true, the editor of the news searched out the governor, who had essentially gone into hiding at a hunting camp, (laughs) and said, you can double-cross Arthur Vandenberg, but you can't double-cross the Detroit News. And such was the power of the press at that time that the governor realized his career was dead in the water if he didn't appoint Arthur Vandenberg. And in fact, they, they, they didn't speak to each other for a year or two. And, and in, his, in his release announcing the appointment, he said that he appointed Vandenberg because he's a, he's a good Republican and all the newspapers say so. And when we come back, the story of Arthur Vandenberg, the man in the middle of the American century. He's gone from small-town newspaper editor to, well, the big time in Washington, D.C., and a seat in the U.S. Senate. More on this story after these messages. This 
is Our American Stories, and we continue with author Hank Meyer on the life of Senator Arthur Vandenberg. And Hank picks up with the year 1933. The country is in the thick of the Great Depression, and Democrat Franklin Delano Roosevelt becomes president. Even Arthur Vandenberg, who disagrees with some of Roosevelt's methods, supports the energy that Roosevelt brings and that willingness to experiment and try new things. And of course, in his first term, Roosevelt originally was not the big government centrist that he became. He was still calling for a balanced budget when he was elected. So it was a a little different time that way. And then one of the solutions that Arthur Vandenberg advocated with the Depression as banks around the country were, were, were weakening. And in Detroit, in fact, there had been a banking crisis that, that with holding companies that were on the verge of collapse that Arthur Vandenberg had been in the middle of trying to sort out and, and bring some federal aid to. Uh, Vandenberg said, you know, if people don't trust the banks, we're not going to recover from this depression. And the only way to trust the banks is to offer some form of deposit insurance. And so he tried to get that with Hoover and his secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon, and they didn't like it. He tried it when Franklin Roosevelt came in. And Hoover and Roosevelt both were listening to some of the big banks who said, you know, we're going to have to pay for this deposit insurance, but it's really to support the weaker banks and they'll pull down the strong ones. And so they were all against it. But Vandenberg built a coalition of Republicans and Democrats in Congress who said, no, the time is right. We're doing banking reform. We need deposit insurance. Now, it turned out later, you could argue that was the most effective measure of the New Deal. And it was Arthur Vandenberg's. Roosevelt had resisted it, threatened to veto it, finally ended up taking credit for it. But beyond that, when in the second New Deal, after Roosevelt wins his landslide re-election in 1934, he becomes far more aggressive in trying to address the country's economic issues. And he's proposing bills that are just a bridge too far for Vandenberg, the National Recovery Act, uh, the efforts to regulate industries in very exacting ways that just reeked to Vandenberg of government overreach and federal authority. Vandenberg dug in his heels and was was one of the most effective legislative opponents of Roosevelt. And so in 1934, Roosevelt had actually quipped to Vandenberg when they were at a, at a conference together that, hey, we could we could campaign together. I mean, our, we're we get along well enough. Um, by 1936, that had all changed. And Vandenberg resented Roosevelt's growing government bureaucracy, the things he was proposing with the Agricultural Adjustment Act, where crops would die in the fields to inflate farm prices at a time of Great Depression. These things did not sit well. And by the way, the, Roosevelt's National Industrial Recovery Act was struck down by the Supreme Court. And Roosevelt's response was, of course, to pack the court. This just shows you again, you know, executive branch is always trying to seize power from the uh, legislative branch. And this is still happening today, Hank. It is. And and so, yes. And so in 1936, after the midterm where, where Roosevelt solidifies his big majorities in Congress, he proposes to pack the court. He's frustrated because, as you say, the court has struck down some of his 
most ambitious New Deal measures. In fact, and Vandenberg now calls this the new ordeal. He loved to coin phrases. So Roosevelt says, you know, I'm going to appoint new justices for every old justice over the age of, of 70 who doesn't retire so that we can have some fresh faces and some, and in his case, some, some pro-Roosevelt votes on the court. Vandenberg is delighted to lay low. He has to bite his tongue and he has to go to Herbert Hoover, the ex-president, and say, you've got to bite your tongue too because there's enough Democrats who don't like this measure that we've got to let them speak up and take the lead in opposing their president. If we do it, the Democrats may be forced to rally around Roosevelt and, and we won't be able to kill it. But if we cooperate with the opposition Democrats, we can beat this thing. And that was one of his early experiences and something that he became known for, and that was that was bipartisanship. On foreign affairs, Vandenberg had always been an isolationist, hearkening back to his idol Alexander Hamilton's sentiment that a young America should avoid the entangling alliances of the old world. But with World War II beckoning, his rigid position would be challenged. When we think about what was happening in Europe in the 1930s, we have to go back to the end of World War One, the Great War, when the Allied powers met at Versailles and crafted a treaty that did not succeed, as Woodrow Wilson had promised the American people, in making the world safe for democracy. Instead, it sowed the seeds of future conflict by being very punitive toward the Germans and the powers in claim they weren't actually defeated because there was an armistice, not a surrender, but to the victors went the spoils and created great resentment that gave rise to people like Adolf Hitler and made that generation of Americans people of Vandenberg's age, Roosevelt's age, who had gone over to fight or had witnessed that fight and said, what have we accomplished here? Now there are new threats in Europe. There are new totalitarian regimes. We didn't make the world safe for democracy. We, we sent our sons to die to, to what end? And so in the 1930s, Vandenberg is part of a growing group of people saying, never again, we are not going to be sucked into one of these European fights and so the answer to that is absolute neutrality. We are not going to come to the aid. We're not going to trade with a belligerent nation, a nation that's at war. And so as Hitler is rebuilding the German military, making threatening noises, as Mussolini is invading Ethiopia, in fact, is, as Japan is invading Manchuria, Franklin Roosevelt is... I would have to argue, more alert to these threats and is saying, you know, we have a relationship with the British. They are a fellow democracy. The French are a democracy. We may need to help them. How can we do that? Vandenberg is saying, you can't do that. We have to go, go with our heads, not our hearts. And we may favor one side over another in an impending conflict, but we're going to stay out of that conflict. That put them on a collision path in the late 1930s. But public opinion was still with Vandenberg and the people who were called the isolationists, who wished to isolate the United States. He, Vandenberg would say insulate the United States against these threats that were an ocean away. 
where Roosevelt is saying, we have aggressors that we have to begin to rein in and keep from going on a rampage. Public opinion is with Vandenberg. Nobody wants another great war. Then in 1939, after Roosevelt has tried and failed to repeal provisions of that Neutrality Act that was passed back in 1937, the World War breaks out again, and Germany invades Poland. The British are wondering, are we next? And Roosevelt wants to aid the British and the French Vandenberg says no, but with the outbreak of war, public opinion, uh, polling is, is a new phenomenon then, so we can begin to track opinion better. Public opinion is seeing a shift to be in sympathy with Poland and soon Denmark and Norway and the Netherlands and Belgium and France who are coming under attack from the Germans. And the Neutrality Act is repealed. And in fact, beyond that, the Lend-Lease, where, where we give some old naval ships to the British, is approved. And Vandenberg frets that that, that use of executive power to determine aid to the Allies is also a, a threat to our democratic values. But the popular opinion shifts in Roosevelt's direction and we are beginning to aid the Allies, although still staying out of the war, until, of course, Pearl Harbor comes along and changes everything. And indeed it did. In his book, Hank writes, that day ended isolation for any realist. And by the way, one of the main themes in this book, as you're hearing, is the more things change, the more they stay the same. Foreign entanglements, well, we're, got, we're having the same argument with the Middle East right now. Executive power, congressional power, legislative power. And that's the thing about our founders and history itself. Nothing old is new and nothing new is old. It's all the same. Just different players and a different stage. And when we come back, more on this remarkable story, the life of Arthur Vandenberg and Hank Meyer after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with author Hank Meyer and his new book, Arthur Vandenberg, The Man in the Middle of the American Century. And Hank picks up with the year 1940. The world is in turmoil with the outbreak of World War II, and at this point, the United States hasn't yet joined the war, and yet there's still turmoil on the home front in Vandenberg's Republican Party. The Republicans... They've always had two different wings, and Vandenberg and the isolationists had the most prominent figures in the party. Arthur Vandenberg, a young senator named Robert Taft, a young prosecutor named Thomas Dewey, later New York governor, they were the leading contenders for the Republican presidential nomination, and they were swept aside with the outbreak of war by a 
Wall Street attorney from Indiana named Wendell Wilkie, who had the passion and enthusiasm and support of the media and a more realistic assessment, perhaps, of world affairs, one more aligned in this case with Roosevelt. And he won the Republican nomination, even though he had been a Democrat six months before. Um, again, some things don't change. Yep. The, so when the Republicans are getting ready to run again in 1944, they say, well, we can't have the party split down the middle between the isolationists and the followers of Wendell Wilkie. We've got to have a platform we can run on if we've got a chance of defeating Franklin Roosevelt. And so they call a meeting on Mackinac Island in Michigan, and the, the, the RNC chairman appoints Vandenberg to, to head up the foreign policy group to get them to agree on what the world is going to look like after the war. And this is a time when there's beginning to be talk about something like a United Nations, but there's, and, and congressmen and senators are beginning to offer resolutions, but Roosevelt probably wisely is, is sitting on them. He's not letting William Fulbright in the Senate, for example, a Democrat, come forward with a resolution calling for a new United Nations because he's worried that once you start getting into the particulars, um, the British are sensitive because they've got all these colonies who now after the war are going to want to be independent. They're, they've fought the Japanese and they're not about to go back to being British colonies sometimes. And you've got the Russians who have their own ideas about what their, what their security requirements are and how they've got their eyes on all these buffer states and they talk about world revolution. Roosevelt doesn't want to offend our allies and upset the apple cart as we're trying to win the war. So he keeps the Democrats from proposing anything to do with post-war plans. So the Republicans have this meeting, and they come away from that meeting with something called the Mackinac Charter that calls for a United States membership in a post-war organization that will respect American sovereignty. It's what becomes the United Nations. And so here Vandenberg and the, some of the people who had fought the League of Nations after World War I take the lead, jump the gun, if you will, on the Democrats in calling for United Nations. And that gives Vandenberg a whole new level of, of visibility and a role in, in crafting a compromise within his own party as the war is ending. And then when Franklin Roosevelt is inaugurated he wins in 44, is inaugurated in 45, and is departing for his final conference of the war with Churchill and Stalin at Yalta. Vandenberg stands up in the Senate and gives a speech calling for something that contradicts everything he's said before about no entangling alliances. He was saying if we're not going to have another world war like we've had two in the last generation, we ought to have a post-war treaty between the victorious allies that guarantees that Germany and Japan will never again become the threats they have been. Now, he's doing that in the name of peace. He's also doing that to try to flush out the Soviets to say, you know, if we guarantee that Germany is not a threat to you anymore, then maybe you don't need your, your armies who are occupying Poland and Hungary and Romania and Bulgaria don't need to stay there. You don't need all these buffer states. And so that, that again, elevates Vandenberg's role in, in foreign policy. Roosevelt is disdainful of his old rival, but then takes 50 copies of the speech with him to Yalta 
and realizes he has to do he has to avoid the mistake that Woodrow Wilson made at Versailles after World War One when he appointed no Republicans of any stature and he brought it back to the Senate and the Republicans said, We don't want to have anything to do with the League of Nations. We weren't part of creating this. You won't let us make any changes. We're not going to approve it. Roosevelt swallows hard and appoints Arthur Vandenberg as an American delegate to a conference in San Francisco in April of 1945 that's going to create the United Nations. Now, in the meantime, Roosevelt dies. Harry Truman becomes president. Truman has no foreign policy experience. The, in fact, it had lunch once with Franklin Roosevelt in the six months between the, the election and Roosevelt's death. The State Department has had minimal influence. Vandenberg goes to San Francisco with a six-member American delegation, and he is the most powerful member, not only by force of his own character, intellect, and personality, but also because everybody there, Americans and international community alike, knows that if the United States is going to join the United Nations, where they didn't join the League of Nations, they're going to need the Republicans in the Senate, and that means they need Arthur Vandenberg. So he is facing off with the, the Russian Foreign Secretary Molotov over who gets to veto what in the UN Security Council and how the, the UN should be set up. It's Arthur Vandenberg doing that. Arthur Vandenberg, in a sense, on the front line of what is the beginning of the Cold War, because we are still fighting the Germans with the Russians as our allies, as these UN delegates are sitting down in San Francisco and the Americans and the Russians are arguing over what the world's going to look like. And my goodness, talk about being the man in the middle of the American century. What you just described puts some flush in the center and with a recently departed president, possibly the most powerful American and the most, let's face it, Hank, the most knowledgeable American and the most reasonable one. He had shifted policy. He had shifted his own position, which I think elevated him uh, to put it to a point, almost a statesmanship level. Talk about that. It did. He was, in part, he benefited from a, a popular perception or a perception in the press that he was the, the, the sinner who had con become a saint, which gave him extra credibility. But he also reflected the changing views of the American people. And one, one of his colleagues has a, has a quote, which I love, where he said, um, Van changes his mind about as often as the average American, but slightly earlier. And there's a, there's a, there's a quality of leadership there that says you're not a visionary, but you're speaking the thoughts of where, the, where, where opinion is headed, and you're speaking with the credibility of someone who has faced these issues and changed his mind. And that really brought him along well. And so in pretty short order... He goes, he, he goes from helping create the United Nations to being involved in peace conferences in Paris where the fate of, of Italy and of, of the Axis powers and, and, and a lot of European questions are being determined. He, he's part of that diplomatic delegation, which no senator before or since had played that kind of a role. And the stakes don't get higher and no one was at the center of world decisions more than this man you didn't know 
and who you'll learn more about in this final segment, Arthur Vandenberg, the man in the middle of the American century. Go to Amazon.com and pick it up. It's a terrific read, and you're going to learn history indirectly by just learning what Arthur Vandenberg faced, the decisions he had to make, and most important of all, the ability to change one's mind. And boy, it's hard to do. And sometimes you got to swallow your pride, but doing the right thing, Vandenberg did it. When we come back, what happens after the war? This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now the final portion of this hour-long feature on Hank Meyer's great book, Arthur Vandenberg, The Man in the Middle of the American Century. And here Hank picks up with April 15, 1945. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt dies just 11 weeks into his fourth term, and his vice president, Harry Truman, is thrust into leading America into the closing hours of World War II and creating a post-war future. Truman and Vandenberg were old Senate colleagues. Truman had a respect for the Senate. Not only did he have to rely on the Senate, he he was losing the big majorities that Roosevelt had, but he had a respect for the Senate, too, that for a while there brought the executive and the legislative branches back into a little more balance. And he and his team and Vandenberg were able to work very closely and that became particularly crucial in 1947 when, in the wake of the war, Europe is devastated. Its economies are, have collapsed. Its cities are in ruin. So are many of its factories. And the most important power on the continent is now the Red Army, uh, which is occupying several countries while American troops are being demobilized and brought home and the, the other allies are, are, are bankrupt or nearly so. And General Marshall, who is now Secretary of State and who has great credibility for his integrity from people like Vandenberg, makes a speech calling for unprecedented aid to help rebuild those European economies. And Vandenberg, being a good Republican, hears the billions that are being banded about it at first blanches at that, but then sits down with Marshall and says, you're right, we've got to do something. Vandenberg commissions an exhaustive study of what effect that aid would have on the American economy and on American resources, and then proceeds to hold extensive hearings, getting everybody's opinion pulling all sides together and putting the Marshall Plan through the Congress, helping rebuild the economies of Europe in a way that still resonates today as, as they are, are, have become strong allies of ours. It's a towering achievement, by the way, Hank, to have done that and I think sealed our legacy as not only peacemakers, but builders of constructive pieces, peace after the peace was made. I want to read something to you. I suppose, quote, I am now called an internationalist. Uh, 
Arthur Vandenberg said in your book. But I still think that our first American fidelity must be to our own American security. And again, what's old is new. We've had this debate from our founding, Hank, and we're still having it. It seems like sometimes through this book, Vandenberg's having it with himself. Talk about that. He is, unquestionably. He really always said, I'm not an isolationist, I'm not an internationalist, I'm a nationalist. And what he would argue was that what was in the national interest was changing. That where once in, in, in the revolutionary times, in, in Hamilton's times, the national interest was served by avoiding aligning yourself with the French or the British and getting involved in their wars. Nationalism in 1945 and 1947 meant when you were now the undisputed superpower and you were a great engine of enterprise and industry needing markets, needing peace to have your own prosperity realized and maximized, that being a nationalist meant being a global player. And that was, so Vandenberg would claim that he was consistent in that way, and in a way he was because his mantra was enlightened self-interest. And self-interest sometimes meant not intervening, not getting involved in other people's feuds and quarrels, and at other times self-interest meant looking at your own future and realizing that it couldn't be done solo, that you were part of a global trading community and your enlightened self-interest called upon you to take a leadership role in the world. And I think that ideology, if you want to call it enlightened self-interest, is far better than saying interventionist or non-interventionist, which are more hard ideological positions and inflexible ones that don't uh, change with the times. Uh, talk about that practical, in the end, practical, almost Midwestern characteristic of Arthur Vandenberg. Well, I think when we talk about interventionist or non-interventionist, um, those are those are situations where, where where we can still argue about whether intervention was was wise in one conflict or another, and we can see where intervention in Vietnam did not lead us down the right road. And yet intervention in World War II saved the world in some respects. And, and, and we need to be able to make those distinctions based on how we define our self-interest, not, on, not, as you say, on an arbitrary measure of, well, we're the world policemen, so of course we're going to get involved in every fight that comes along, or it's none of our business, we'll let them duke it out, not our problem, we can hide away from that fight. Neither one of those is a universal answer. The universal answer is to look after American interests, and those are going to be defined differently throughout our history and defined differently depending on the situation. I'm going to end with a quote out of the epilogue of your book, Hank. And by the way, again, the book is Arthur Vandenberg, The Man in the Middle of the American Century. Quote, Speak what you think now in hard words, and tomorrow speak what tomorrow thinks in hard words again, though it contradict everything you said today. And by the way, you then added to Vandenberg's quote, 
Be ready to change. The world requires this of its leaders, but seldom gets it. Talk about that. The, we tend to hear our politicians talk about not wishing to compromise. And I think what we, the, the important distinction there is that our republic, our democracy, actually depends on compromise. In fact, I once had a, a, a supporter of a, of a political candidate tell me that, that so-and-so is, is like the founding fathers in that he won't compromise. And I found myself thinking, now, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, arguably our two most influential founding fathers, were bitter rivals. And in fact, one was a slave owner, one was an abolitionist. One believed in an agrarian society. One believed in the coming industrial age. They argued and argued and argued. And had they not compromised, I mean, the, the very creation of our government was an act of compromise. The creation of the two branches of the legislature, of Congress, was an act of compromise. Had they not compromised, there would have been no United States. And so this notion that compromise is a bad thing, and, and it seems like we're seeing a lot of that today as people talk about a polarized political climate where, you, where compromise can cost you your political future flies in the face of what Republican form of government and a democracy requires, which is infinite compromise. And Vandenberg really looked at compromise as an art form. And I think that was, that's reflected in that quote you mentioned, where you can be absolutely strident and convinced that your position is right, but as times change, you're going to have to adopt a new position, and you better be firmly convinced that that's the way to go. And that, that I think, is at the, the core of of constructive engagement in our political system. Indeed. In fact, where our nation's capital is situated, Hank, was the result of a compromise. So you're dead right. And by the way, anybody who's ever been married to someone who refuses to compromise is, well, divorced, right? Exactly. (laughs) So, (laughs) Hank, we appreciate the time, the effort, a terrific book, Arthur Vandenberg, The Man in the Middle of the American Century. And go to Amazon.com. It's there. It's waiting for you. Hank, thanks so much for doing what you did and for writing this terrific biography. Lee, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. And, you know, as we think about these, these bitter partisan times today, it's almost, well, it's not laughable, but, but it's just, it's happened before. And what's remarkable in the past is that men could see past that partisanship and actually work together. And this relationship that Vandenberg had with President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, two leaders of opposing political parties and forces. Well, it's a whirlwind of a story and shows in the end that bipartisan cooperation for the common good can be had in any time, including ours. And by the way, we think of our political debates today as fiercer and uglier than earlier ones, but that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, remember that a vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr, shot and killed Alexander Hamilton. That's a partisan dispute. And when Vandenberg was considering challenging FDR in the 1940 election, Roosevelt instructed the FBI, which is supposed to be an apolitical organization, to open an office in Vandenberg's hometown to monitor his activities. And yet, 
These two men ultimately found a way to coexist for their country's sake and for the sake of all. And by the way, don't forget, we have Hank Meyer's really terrific story on his grandfather as well and the tremendous grocery chain enterprise that they built into, well, just a, a behemoth in the Midwest. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all that we do. Arthur Vandenberg's story here on Our American Stories. stories they called him possum we all know him as the great george jones that's him we're listening to now with a song of his own called best guitar picker i work so very hard with that old guitar trying to do what the big hillbillies do George Jones achieved international fame for his long list of hit records as well as his distinctive voice. With a career spanning more than 50 years, Jones is regarded as one of country music's all-time greatest stars. As fellow country star Waylon Jennings once said, quote, If we could sound the way we wanted, we'd all sound like George Jones. With 13 number one country hits, three Grammys, and dozens of other awards, Jones tirelessly defended the integrity of country music, telling Billboard in 2006, quote, it's never been for love of money. I thank God for it because it makes me a living, but I sing because I love it, not because of the dollar signs. During his career, Jones had more than 150 hits, both as a solo artist and in duets with others. Born in Texas, Jones first heard country music when he was seven and was given a guitar at the age of nine. Like so many other famous musicians, George Jones began performing in the church. I didn't realize that uh, you even got paid for it. Uh, you know, at, at the beginning, uh, I, I started off singing in churches and things like that, and and I got to hearing, uh, you know, Roy Acuff and all of them on the Grand Ole Opry, and uh, I got my first guitar when I was about uh, nine or ten or something like that, and. I fell in love with it, and I I took that guitar with me everywhere I went. It was a little had horses on it and ropes and Gene Archer's name, and it was Gene Archer guitar. And I I would take that to school with me. I'd hide it out in the little patch of woods and and pull leaves over it to hide it, so nobody would come along and steal it. Young George Jones was given his first guitar lesson by the preacher's wife. He would then go to entertain passengers on the city bus 
with his music. The preacher's uh, wife, uh, Sister Annie, and she uh, taught me the basic cards like G, C, D, and, and A, and what have you, F. And I, it all just came to me like it was just normal, you know. And that's, that's when I started traveling. When we moved into Beaumont, the big city, you know, from Kuntz, I lived out in the country. We moved in there, and um, I would—I uh, got to know everybody by taking that guitar with me on the, the bus, the city bus lines. And uh, they got to where they knew me and then didn't cost me nothing. I spend my days, you know, uh, going back to, towards the back of the bus, get back there and just start playing and singing and everybody acting like they enjoy it. And I thought that was the greatest feeling in the world, you know, so... Uh, I'd go to the end of one bus line, get on another bus, go to the end of it. And finally I'd get on the right one to get back home. And it was just, uh, I just loved it so much, couldn't stay away from it. Jones then moved from playing his music for people on the back of city buses to the top of the music charts. I started playing the uh, the taverns and little little things like that just to get some just because I love to do it. You know, I didn't even know you, you're supposed to get paid. I was still naive about all that. And uh, But then as I got a couple of years older, you know, you hear about these things, uh, the Grand Ole Opry going to Tennessee, and, oh, man, wouldn't that be something, you know? And, and of course, we'd, uh, we uh, got to thinking about, after I uh, got out of the Marine Corps, uh, they uh, got in touch with me on Star Day Records and wanted to see me when I got home. And I had my uh, first recording session in 55, 54. And uh, in, uh, in a living room of a house, uh, they had egg crates all over the wall to soundproof it a little. But you could still, you know, still hear the 18-wheelers go by. But anyhow, you know, when we got our chance to, to come and do a song on the opera when I had finally got Why Baby Why going. And that was the biggest thrill, you know, just to see your name in the in the charts, you know, and and people talking about it. And oh my goodness, uh, and then when I and then I found out you can get money for it. You can get money for it. He left home at sixteen and went to Jasper, Texas where he sang and played on the KTXJ radio station with fellow musician Dalton Henderson. From there, he worked at the KRIC radio station. During one such afternoon show, Jones met his idol, Hank Williams. When I was a kid, I first met Hank, you know, in a, at a radio station where he had time to sit down and talk a few minutes with you. And he had to be the nicest guy I've ever I've ever met in my life. So down to earth, so honestly talking, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, hardly playing. You know, there was no put on about him or all this stuff, you know. And he had a big hit out at the time called Wedding Bells. I was going to play guitar with him on, on this radio show. Well, he had his guitar and he just started singing. I've got the invitation that you sent me, Wedding Bell. And I'm standing on the other side of the mic. That's when the mic came out of the ceiling. And I'm standing there ready, ready to kick it off. And instead, he starts singing. 
Come to find out, he finished the song, and I haven't, I haven't hit a note. I haven't hit a note. And by the way, you can tell he remembers this like it was yesterday. Can you imagine, 16 years old, and the legend, the king of country music, walks in, and he's singing next to you, Hank Williams. When we come back, more on the life of George Jones here on Our American Stories, his life, his death, and my goodness, when you hear some of the country stars and rock and roll stars memorializing and talking about the life of George Jones at his memorial service, it'll move you. More after these messages. Now you might say to me, let's eat. I might say my name is Pete. And you say that you can go ahead and steal a life that isn't real later. I might say and bill, cause there ain't no money in this deal. The life of George Jones here on Our American Stories for the hour. Because, well, because. Jones served in the United States Marine Corps, was discharged in 1953, and married his first wife, Shirley Ann Corley, in 1954. His first record, No Money in This Deal, appeared on Star Day Records, beginning the singer's association with producer and mentor H.W. Pappy Daly. The song was actually cut in Star Day's Records co-founder Jack Starn's living room. Let's take a listen. Jones also worked at KTRM in Beaumont, Texas around this time, and he acquired the nickname Possum while working there. One of the DJs there started calling him, quote, George P. Williker Picklepuss Possum Jones. Because, quote, he cut his hair short like a possum's belly, had a possum's nose, and stupid eyes like a possum. <laughs> Tell me what you really think. And it stuck. It stuck. Jones's first hit came with Why Baby Why in 1955, peaked at four on the Billboard country charts that year. It was Jones's first single chart, following several unsuccessful singles released during the prior year. Jones' frequent songwriting partner, Daryl Edwards, was inspired to write the words after hearing an argument between a couple at a gas station. Tell me why, baby, why, baby, why, baby, why you make me cry, baby, cry, baby, cry, baby, cry. Lord, I can't ever love you till the day that I die, so tell me why, baby, why, baby, why, baby, why. Well, I've got a crow I want to pick with you. Just like last time when the feathers flew You're running wild, kicking up your heels Leaving me at home with a handful of bills Lord, I can't live without you, you know it's true But there's no living with you, so what'll I do? I'm going honky-tonk and get as tight as I can Then maybe by then you'll appreciate a good man 
1959, Jones had his first major number one on the Billboard country chart with White Lightning. Written by J.P. Richardson, a.k.a. The Big Bopper. And, of course, he went down with Buddy Holly on the day the music died. Let's take a listen to George Jones. Well, in North Carolina, way back in the hills, little my old pappy and he had in a steel. He brewed white lightning till the sun went down. Then he'd fill him a jug and he'd pass it around. Mighty, mighty pleasing, pappy's corn squeezing. In his 1997 autobiography, I Live to Tell It All, Jones recalls arriving for that recording session for White Lightning under the influence of a great deal of alcohol, and the track took approximately 80 takes to complete. This was perhaps understandable since his lifelong friend, the Big Bopper, whose composition he was recording, had been killed, as we just noted, during the preceding week in that tragic ending of so many great musicians' lives. To make matters worse, Buddy Killen, who played the upright bass on the recording, was reported as having severely blistered fingers from having to play his bass part 80 times. Killen not only threatened to quit the session, but he also threatened to physically harm Jones for the painful consequences of his drinking. And by the way, we're going to get into more of that because there were painful consequences, but Jones ultimately got sober And in his memorial service, my goodness, you hear so much storytelling about that. While touring, Jones met and played shows with Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash. While just an acquaintance of Elvis, Jones would remain a lifelong friend of Johnny. Here's Johnny Cash and George Jones with I've Got Stripes. On a Monday, I was arrested on a Tuesday. They locked me in the jail On a Wednesday My trial was attested On a Thursday They said guilty And the judge's gavel fell I got stripes Stripes around my shoulders I got chains Chains around my feet I got stripes Stripes around my shoulders And them chains, them chains, they're about to drag us down On a Monday, I got my stripes breeches With Presley's explosion in popularity, though, pressure was put on Jones, well, to sound more like Elvis. His heart was never in it, and he quickly regretted the decision. Rocket was the rockability single by George Jones released under the pseudonym Thumper Jones, not wanting to use his real name, and jeopardizing his reputation as a country artist. Let's take a listen. Well, I'm going down to the Calvary on a bop to every song. I'm going to rock, rock, rock my blues away. We'll rock them all night long while I'll be rocking. Yeah, rocking, rockin', rockin'. Yeah, baby, when I'm rocking, I want to rock it with you. And by the way, this is a theme we hear over and over again in our hour-long conversation with David Cobb. Cobb talked about a young singer-songwriter, not so young, Chris Stapleton, who did not like the way the labels were pushing him around into various corners, trying to be this flavor of the month or that flavor of the month. And all that David Cobb has done with his wonderful singer-songwriters is let them be who they are. We heard the same thing about Johnny Cash when Cash met a producer named Rick Rubin, and he got to just do Johnny Cash songs again. 
So these artists, they're vulnerable to this kind of stuff, and we love telling these stories here on Our American Stories. Jones signed with United Artists in 1962, and he immediately scored one of the biggest hits of his career, She Thinks I Still Care. His voice had grown noticeably deeper during this period, and he began cultivating a singing style that became uniquely his own. It remained on the Billboard survey for 23 weeks, six of them at number one. Just because I ask a friend about her Just because I spoke her name somewhere Just because I rang her number by mistake today She thinks I for the rest of the 1960s, Jones would score only one number one, 1967's Walk Through This World With Me, but he practically owned the country music charts throughout the decade. Jones's binge drinking and use of amphetamines on the road, though, caught up with him in 1967, and he had to be admitted into a neurological hospital to seek treatment for his drinking. Jones would go to extreme lengths for a drink if the thirst was on him. Here's George Jones with his friend Johnny Cash talking about their heavy use of drugs. I drank to start with quite a bit more, a lot more than I should have. And, and uh, then when it seemed like everything in the world uh, was down on me, uh, that's when I, didn't, I just didn't care anymore. We drank together. We took pills together. We got in trouble together. We suffered a lot of pain together, but we had some, what we thought were some great times together. And then when I just, when I was at that point, I knew there was no out. I just, there was no good thinking at all. I, there was no way out of it, so I just didn't care no more, so I went to the other stuff. I went to the heart, the, the, the drugs, and, and uh, then I really got in bad shape. I got down to about 105 pounds, they said. And I looked terrible, I looked awful, I sung terrible, and uh, I was terrible. I don't think I really was beginning to see it was out of control because I was so out of control I couldn't see anything. No, indeed. And when we come back, we're going to continue with the story of George Jones. And by the way, we heard similar stories when we did the Kurt Cobain Hour. Uh, it was just tragic. The road, the life, the artist's life, there's just something about it that draws these guys, these girls... To drugs, Janis Joplin, too, and so many greats. And it's a tough life, all the glamour, all the fame. But in the end, a lot of loneliness and a lot of sadness. When we come back for the hour, the life of George Jones, celebrating it. And we're going to take you to his memorial. And you can't believe who you'll hear from and what you'll hear here on Our American Stories.
spend my nights out in the barroom. Look was the only love I'd known. But she rescued me from reaching for the bottom and brought me back being too far gone. Tennessee whiskey You're a sweet Strawberry wine You're as warm As a glass of brandy On a high stone This is Our American Stories, and I really don't know how I can interrupt that song. That's Chris Stapleton with Justin Timberlake and Chris's remarkable wife, an incredible accompanist in her own right and singer, at the CMA Awards in 2015, singing, I believe, their favorite George Jones song together, a celebration of George Jones right here for the hour. And the most notorious Jones drinking story involves the country music legend, and a John Deere lawnmower. But what a lot of folks don't know is that George Jones chose this slow-moving mode of transportation to procure alcohol more than once. The first and most well-documented lawnmower incident was the late 1960s. George was living eight miles outside of Beaumont, Texas, with his then-wife, Shirley Ann Corley. Jones, who was born in Saratoga, Texas, just west and north of Beaumont, had already experienced a few number-one country hits by that time with the songs White Lightning, Tender Years, and She Still Thinks I Care, George's success fueled his wayward ways with alcohol, and he was drinking so bad, his wife Shirley resorted to hiding all the keys to the vehicles before she would leave so George wouldn't drive to the nearest liquor store in Beaumont. Boy, that's when things are bad. That didn't stop him. After tearing the house apart looking for a set of keys, George looked out the window to see a riding lawnmower sitting on the property under the glow of a security light. The incident was later memorialized as part of country music lore in numerous songs and videos, including Jones's own honky tonk song in 1996. Looks like I'm gonna need some backup over here. Possum's at it again. Backup, set backup, quick! I saw those blue lights flashing. Over my left shoulder He walked right up and said Get off that riding mower I said, sir, let me explain Before you put me in the tank She took my keys away And now she won't drive me to drink I need a honky-tonk song A cold, cold beer A hardwood floor A smoky atmosphere A pocket full of change To last me all night long I gotta hear old Hank I'm on a honky-tonk song 
George Jones eventually married artist Tammy Wynette after their tours were booked by the same agency and their paths crossed. By 1980, Jones had not had a number one single in six years. Many critics began to write him off. However, the singer stunned the music industry in April when He Stopped Loving Her Today was released and shot to number one on the country charts, remaining there for 18 weeks. Here's George Jones talking about this time in his life and how this song came to be. This was uh, right when I was at my lowest point, and I was having all my problems. And I went in the uh, rehab, and I got straightened out. And as soon as I got out, I'd been carrying that song almost a year. And as soon as I got out and got straight enough, we went in to the studio with Billy Sherrill and recorded He Stopped Loving Her Today. And I said, it still ain't a hit because it's too sad, it's too morbid. They're not going to buy this record, but I love it because it's been on my mind for almost a year, so let's do it. Bobby Braddock and, and uh, Curly Putnam. And Bobby Braddock, is, you wouldn't think a song like this would come from him because he's a funny character. But I, I love his writing, and you wouldn't think about it like this, is that pretty would come from somebody like Bobby Braddock. I told Billy, I said, please uh, talk to Bobby and Curly and, and see if they will write another verse, and uh, which came, which did come, uh, and as a recitation, the part where I, at the end of the song where I do the verse and I, I do the recitation. Yeah. And Millie does the high, pretty, uh, <laughs> soprano voice, whatever it is. <laughs> and, uh, but that just made the song. I said, she's got to come back. She's got to come back yeah. either now or some way in his life or before he dies or either at his funeral. And this is exactly what they wrote. And when I came out of rehab and got my life straightened out, this was the first record that I cut. This song became the single of the year for George. It became the song of the year in 1980. It also became the Country Music Association song of the year in both 1980 and 1981. And by the way, this song has become so synonymous with Jones that few singers dare to cover it. Here's why. He said, I'll love you till I die. She told him you'll forget in time. As the years went slowly by, she still prayed upon his mind. Kept her picture on his wall Went half crazy now and then But he still loved her through it all Hoping she'd come back again Kept some letters by his bed It in 1962 He had underlined in red Every single I love you I went to see him just today But I didn't see no tears 
All dressed up to go away First time I'd seen him smile in years He stopped loving her today It placed a reef upon his door And soon they'll carry him away He stopped loving her today When we come back, we're going to take you to George Jones's memorial service in 2013. You're going to hear from everybody. You're going to hear from Alan Jackson, Kenny Chesney, Kid Rock, Ronnie Millsap, Randy Travis, and Vince Gill and Patty Loveless. My goodness, whether you hear what they do, it's just so beautiful. They all share their memories, and you'll hear a few of them sing and pay tribute to the man they loved and admired. And by the way, the fact that George Jones was able to clean up his act and stay sober is a key part of what you'll hear coming up. The life of George Jones celebrated here on Our American Stories. He stopped loving her today. I've had choices Since the day that I was born There were voices That told me right from wrong If I had listened No, I wouldn't be here today Living and dying With the choices I've made And that's George Jones in 1999, a great cover song. Jones, while he was taking responsibility for his choices in that song, covering it, he did it in his life too, and he got sober. And in 2013, he was scheduled to perform his final concert at the Bridgestone Arena in Nashville, Tennessee. On April 18, 2013, however... Jones was taken to Vanderbilt University Medical Center for a slight fever and irregular blood pressure. Following six days in intensive care, he died on April 26, 2013. He was 81 years old. On May 2nd, there was a memorial service. And my goodness, so many people came out. Let's take a listen to Vince Gill and Patty Loveless. Here, they share their memories of their friend. My favorite memory of all is, for some reason, George thought I liked ravioli. And uh, <laughs> cases and cases of the worst ravioli you ever ate in your life wound up on my bus. I still have some if you'd like uh, some historical ravioli from Brother George. But, uh, Patty, would you like to say anything? I'm sure you would. Absolutely. You want me over here or over there? Say something. Oh, for me to say something. I think you've said it all. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, when Keith was talking about If My Heart Had Windows when I recorded that song, 
I remembered that um, that they had played it on WSM, and uh, they got a, a call from some lady that had called in, and uh, you know said, "Well, that was really nice what she did, but she can't sing it like George Jones." And you know what? I totally agree. Vince Gill and Patty Lovelace went on to sing "Go Rest High on That Mountain" to say goodbye to their friend George Jones. You can hear Vince's voice break in this live tribute as he's overcome with emotion, tears pouring down his and Patty Lovelace's face. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. By the way, you rarely hear in your life Vince Gill miss. And he missed because he just couldn't do it. He was tearing up. You ever get a chance, go to the video. You'll cry watching it. Kid Rock got up next, of all people. It turns out he wrote with George Jones and he was a friend of George's. And he shares a story about one of his first interactions with Jones early in their friendship. It was probably 10 years ago or so. First time I came into contact with George. And he'd asked me to write a song for him. And uh, I asked if I could pick his brain a little bit, get him on the phone. I called Nancy, who, by the way, at the time, I thought was his secretary. <laughs> I didn't know any better. Um, so she, I talked with her for a while about it. She put me on the, on the phone with him. And I said, uh, I said, I'd just like to pick your brain and see where you're at in life and what you're thinking to help me write something for you. And he said, I'll never forget, he said, um, I just wonder now that I've got my life together and so in love with Nancy, how Tammy and all these people would view me from heaven looking down now. And I thought, <clears throat> I just blurted out, oh, we need to write the ultimate drinking song. And he goes, no, 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 no. He said, I'm done singing those drinking songs. And he pointedly said it. And I tried to explain, you know, no, I'm talking about closure, this, that, and the other. And um, we spoke a bit more and I hung up and I, I wrote a song I wrote a verse and a chorus for a song that I never got to uh, give to him. And I'll just give you a little bit of it. It was called, uh, and the chorus said, <clears throat> I may be a little slower, but I'm still 12 steps ahead of you. I spent a lifetime getting sober, and I wondered if you knew that now I'm spending my days without the bottle, high in love with you. And, um, <clears throat> and you get to know why Kid Rock is Kid Rock. He can write. 
Country star Brad Paisley was up next to memorialize his friend with some heartfelt memories before he performed Me and Jesus. There are a lot of TV networks covering this today, and uh, there's probably a lot of young people watching. And you, you must be thinking, boy, they're making a ruckus about this guy. I would encourage you, if you don't know about him, to go find him now. To go buy his records and... And see what all this ruckus is about, because uh, it's worth it. Um, George loved young people. And uh, going all the way back to seeing Randy Travis up here when he was a young new artist and, and you guys all but adopted and fed him. And then Vince Gill and Alan Jackson and Kenny Chesney and later me, when I moved to town, uh, a completely lost single, young, aimless guy that wanted to be a singer. You guys, I was very, very lucky to be one of the people that you decided you were going to adopt. And um, I remember I was living in a condo, a small condo in Brentwood, and got my first horse, which is so stupid. Um, and George said, well, son, you know, uh, just keep him out here at the farm. Some of the greatest memories of my life are going out there and working with that horse and seeing the golden voice in a golf cart come driving up and, and just want to talk. And, uh, you know... I, I'm lucky enough that I met George when he had he had gotten right with with the Lord and with and had beat the demons and had and had found Nancy and God and you know uh, what it must be like to, to be the maker that made him meeting him and I just have to say that say that he is an inspirational story to all of us if that man can live to 81 years old all of us can can fight against the things that that bring us down and next up was george jones's pastor mike wilson who shared his favorite george jones story my favorite story was when we were truly introduced to george my son, my oldest son, Dylan, has the opportunity to go to school with one of George's granddaughters. And Dylan came home one day and he said, Dad, Brianne's grandpa was at school signing autographs. And I said, well, great. Who's Brianne's grandpa? I don't know. Some old guy. <laughs> and then he said, he had his wife with him. I don't know who is it. I don't know. He went to his backpack and pulled out this ratty piece of paper. And I remember looking at it and my jaw hit the floor and I said, Dylan, that is George Jones and Miss Nancy. And he looked at me and this is how George will forever be known in our house. No, Dad, that's Brian's grandpa. <laughs> and 
And the whole night was just laughter, a lot of tears, and all celebrating the great George Jones. And for the hour, that's what we've been doing here on Our American Stories. His story, the folks who remember him, their story about George Jones, their stories about George Jones. And what came up again and again was his version of Amazing Grace. Mike Huckabee talked about it. Brad Paisley talked about it. Vince Gill talked about it. And so we figured we'd close the hour because the man had come to God late in his life or come back. And so let's take a listen to what is a perfect, a perfect rendition of this great, great gospel song. This is Our American Stories, The Life of George Jones, celebrated by Nashville and rock and roll music's best. Amazing grace How sweet The sound That saved A wretch Like me I once Was lost but now I'm found Was blind But now I see